And how do you pronounce your last name, Murray? Uh, South Africa is Murray, but all international people say Murray. Yeah. Murray. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Nairobi Book Club, the podcast. Welcome to Nairobi Book Club, the podcast. The world of imagination is awesome. Love, 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 love this book. I saw it um, last year. I think it was December and I saw it in the bookshop and I was really intrigued and I'm like, oh, okay, so what this about? But uh, I was on a book buying ban, so I'm like, I'm not buying any more books. <laughs> I've been on many of those, yeah. I asked people to buy it for Christmas, nobody bought it for me. So I went back and I got it and um, because my TBR list is like as tall as I am, I finally got around to it like two weeks ago and I really, really enjoyed it. I I think it's a phenomenal story. And it's interesting, um, it's interesting because this was the first time, like I'm aware about the Soweto uprising, like I... Like you know about it somehow, but this was the first time that I got curious. It was 16th June, I believe. I got curious when those stories about it and I started reading and reading up on it. And that's when I realized it's like, wow, it's 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 deeper than we thought. So just fantastic book. So maybe the first because I have my list of questions because this is very serious. <laughs> Thank you for reading it. And uh, you know what? I always believe that a book finds you at the right moment that you mean to read it. So I kind of feel like this was the right time for you to be reading it right now. Fantastic. So um, maybe you could just like give a little, um, like a synopsis of what the book is about, like from your perspective, what in a nutshell, um, if you don't know the words, yeah. Right, so it's about two characters, a nine-year-old white girl called Robin Conrad, whose parents are murdered on the day of the Soweto uprising. Uh, She needs somewhere to live, someone to take care of her. Uh, and so she moves in with her hapless aunt who isn't the best person to care for her. And the other character is Beauty and Bali, a almost 50-year-old black causa woman whose daughter goes missing on the day of the Sweater Uprising and she needs to come and find her daughter in Johannesburg. And essentially, this is this dual narrative of these two people who are so, so different on complete opposite sides of the political spectrum whose lives come together. So the book takes place over like, at the beginning anyway, it takes place over a couple of days, starting with um, just a few days prior to the uprising, when uh, Beauty's, um, I think it's her brother, who calls her and says, listen, I think your daughter is involved in something, yeah, well, not too good, and you need to come down and get her. And it turns out that she was one of the orchestrators of the, of the Children's March, so to speak. So what is it about the Soweto uprising. I know you're South African, so obviously that's a big part of your history, but what is it that drove you to actually write a book about the events surrounding that day? Right, so the Soweto uprising happened in 1976, and this was the year in which I was born. So Mm. on the day that this travesty was taking place, not very far from where I lived, um, I was a five-month-old white baby being cared for by a black woman. Uh, And my whole life, you know, I kind of took her presence in my life for granted because this is what children do. And it's only when I got older and I started to realize 
um, how difficult this must have been for her. Her name was Eunice. It, it is Eunice. She's 97 years old this year. Um, wow. Her name's Eunice. And the older I got, the more I realized what sacrifices she made. She left five children behind in the Bantu homeland of the Trans Sky and worked in Johannesburg uh, pretty much for the oppressor so that she could raise me. Uh, and she did it with such love and such grace. Uh, and so for me, that year was pivotal. It was such a huge part in South Africa's history. The Soweto uprising was a catalyst to the eventual dismantling of apartheid. Uh, and the fact that this was done by young people. I mean, we're seeing this today in the world. Young people are standing up against climate change, against all kinds of, all kinds of travesties. Um, and, and it's the power of that young voice that I really wanted to, to harness. And also it shows South Africa in transition, in turmoil, and my two characters were in transition and turmoil as well. So it was a perfect backdrop to what was happening in their lives. I love it. Um, so the, there are two perspectives to the book because the book is written from Robin's voice. Robin is the nine-year-old uh, girl. She's nine, yeah. Yeah, she's nine. The nine-year-old girl who unfortunately loses her parents on that day. And then there's the nine-year-old white girl. And then there's the almost 50 year old black woman. So those are two very different perspectives and two very different voices. So how were you able to capture both? Because I think they're captured beautifully, actually. So how were you able to do both? Yeah. You know, I thought writing Robin was going to be easier because, mm -hmm. you know, white girl, my experience growing up in apartheid South Africa, I thought writing beauty was going to be incredibly difficult because cause a woman, not a culture that, you know, is my culture, not an experience that I had. But writing beauty was just, it was like I was channeling her and she flowed through me. Like the words just put themselves on the page. Um, writing Robin was much, much harder because it, it meant I had to confront, you know, my own history, my own sense of being complicit in the oppression of other people and benefiting my whole life from the oppression of other people. Uh, and it was, you know, confronting my privilege, uh, many things about myself and my, my culture, my race that I really, really didn't like. Uh, and so, you know, it was tricky. There, there, were, there were moments that it was incredibly difficult, but I tell people it was like a form of therapy. You know, it was, it was my therapy was, was writing these dual narratives. And I didn't want to um, appropriate a voice that wasn't mine. I was extremely aware that as a white woman to write from a black woman's perspective um, was, you know, it was something I probably shouldn't be doing unless I was going to do it, you know, with huge respect. And even then I was nervous to do it. But without writing Beauty's voice, all we had was a little bratty white girl uh, you know, and, and the story, I wanted the story to show both sides um, of this experience. Mm. Okay. That, that, it's interesting that you'd say writing Robin would be easier when automatically someone would assume writing Beauty would be easier. So for how were you able to find Beauty's voice? Um, were you, did you talk to people who went through that experience at the time? Was it based on maybe something that Eunice talked to you about? Like, how were you able to capture that voice? Yeah, the voice was like a, an amalgamation of quite a few things. So I'd grown up with Eunice my whole life and she had this wonderful kind of lyrical voice um, that, had, that I'd internalized. But besides that, I spent 10 years volunteering in Soweto with HIV AIDS orphans and their caregivers. Uh, and I would spend sort of three to four days in Soweto. Uh, and I worked with the most amazing women. Many of them 
Gogos who had lost their children to the AIDS pandemic, this whole missing generation. Um, and, and they kind of poured their stories into me. Um, and there was this sense of these women who worked as laborers their whole lives waiting for the end of apartheid so that their children could have these opportunities that they themselves never had. And then suddenly this moment comes and this pandemic hits and, and this whole generation is wiped out. And there is all of this potential gone. Um, and so, you know, I feel like their voices kind of blended into Beauty's voice, that Beauty is kind of a voice of this entire generation. Wow. Okay. Um, you've said Gogo and I've remembered, like, it's, it's interesting how in Africa so many words are similar because, like, in, in Kenya, um, I think Gogo is, um, also means grandmother. I believe it means grandmother. Uh, yeah. I think in Kalenjin. Yeah. So it's it's amazing that we share so many words without even realizing, like, we're bound by our language. Even when I saw Panga, which is machete, that's what we call the machete as well. Panga. It's, it's such a common word. So you're like, oh, it feels nice to kind of see those things jump out at you. And, and I have um, to put in like a glossary of terms for my uh, sort of North American readers because they look at Panga and they're like, what the heck is this? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and writing it as machete is really just not the same. No, it doesn't have the same no. effect. No. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about the title. Hum if you don't know the words. Um, and it's in the book. It's, I believe it's during Robin's parents' funeral. And um, her parents weren't very religious. Her aunt, obviously, is not religious at all. So it's, it's a bit odd for them to be in church singing hymns. And Robin tells her aunt, listen, I, 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 don't, know th- I don't know this song. And she's just like, hum if you don't know the words. Um, so when I, when I reached that part of the book and I'm like, oh, okay, so this is where it comes from. But <laughs> I believe there was a, a deeper kind of meaning to that. And from my understanding, maybe as a reader, what I could say is I felt like it's just... Um, how do you make do with what you have? You may not necessarily know what is going on, but it's almost like a fake it till you make it kind of thing. Definitely. Yeah. So I'd, I'd want to know from now the writer's perspective, what, what, why this title? Right. So the book was originally going to be called something else. Uh, mm. It was going to be named after the operatic saying that, you know, it ain't over till the fat lady sings, um, you know, and, uh, at, at the end of the book, there's this Shabin queen, Mama Fatty, who's mm. just this resplendent woman. She was a real Shabin queen in South Africa, but in the 60s in Sophia Town. Uh, and I read an article about her and I saw a picture of her and I was just like, she's glorious. I, I have to kind of fictionalize her. And so I pictured her singing at the end of the book and that was going to be the title. But when I wrote that funeral scene, when Robin goes, I don't know this hymn, and her aunt says to her, you know, just hum if you don't know the words. That resonated with me so much as a kind of treading water, you know, because both of these characters are not in their comfort zones. Um, things have happened that have thrown them outside their comfort zone. And they're really just trying to make it from one day to the next. Uh, and then in the subsequent chapter, Beauty says, this is what it means to grow old. We no longer know the words to young people's songs. And then that just clicked for me as this as this metaphor for everything these characters are going through. And and on another level, I mean, South Africa has 11 official languages today. Um, you know, when the new um, anthem came out uh, after 1994, when, when Nelson Mandela became president, most South African people couldn't sing any of the black parts of the anthem. So they would just sing the white part and then hum during the black parts until they learned 
the words for it, you know. So it all just kind of came together, and it seemed perfect for this book and perfect for South Africa. Mm. That is interesting. It, 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 yeah. So in essence, it carries over into so many different kinds of meanings, and I think that's one of the best thing. Uh, the best things about the book, it's it's really nuanced. And I know we like to throw that word around, nuanced, but um, there there are little there are tiny little parts of the book that you read, and you're like, it's it's. It seems like a small thing, but it, it's actually a big deal. I'm going to actually read a couple of quotes, my favorite quotes from the book. Yes, oh, I love that. <laughs> I wrote them down. Like when I read it and I'm like, okay, this makes sense. Um, so we already talked about the part um, of the funeral, hum, if you don't know the words. Then there's page 227. Um, maybe this is an example of the nuance I was talking about. And I think it's where um, um, uh, the aunt... The neighbor, the Goldman, Mrs. Yes. Goldman. Uh, yes. Uh, Mrs. Goldman, and she is trying to give Beauty some money because Edith has gone to work and Beauty cannot venture out because, first of all, it's illegal for a black person to be living in the white people's complex. And um, and she goes out one night and someone reports her, so she has to maintain the hours. So Mrs. Goldman, who's an ally, gives her some money. And this particular part, it, I read it and I was like... Ooh, where is it? Where is it? I'm going to find it. What I should have done was highlight it, but I am loath to put any kind of mark on a book. I'm, I'm even oh, loath to sign my own books because it feels like sacrilege. So yeah, I, I, know, I know. I know exactly yeah. what you mean. So here yeah. it is. So now this is Mrs. Goldman trying to give beauty money. So she said, it says, she turned to beauty while opening her purse. Sorry, I wasn't thinking before. Bread's not going to be enough to tide you over until Edith gets back. Here, take this, and if you need more, let me know. She put a wad of bills down on the table instead of in Beauty's hands. And I realized that she'd done it in a way so that Beauty wouldn't have to clap her hands and curtsy as black people were expected to do when getting anything from whites. And I read that and I was like... I don't know. It just, it hit me somewhere. Maybe it's because we're in this whole Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, racism is still a a thing that's in the world. Like in Kenya, for us, we have our own problems, but I don't think racism is something that we really deal with. So this is something you're seeing from the outside. There's still prejudice and it's almost the same thing. But now when you're talking about like black versus white, that's not something we see a lot. So when I read this, I was like, every time, um, basically, a, 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 a white person gave you anything as a black person you're supposed to clap your hands and curtsy and i had i'd never seen that before and it it kind of just hurt my soul and i was like there are so many layers of oppression that come out in this book that sometimes it kind of just you feel a rage bubbling over and you feel like you're gonna burst into tears and it's just it's amazing so that leads now to my next question um because there's some horrible scenes in the book there's some really ugly things because you read them and you kind of just, you know, put the book down and you're like, wow. As much as it's fiction, it's, you know, you can imagine it's based on something that actually happened. So what was it like for you to just bear it down and just bring out the ugly? Because it's necessary to the essence of the story. How, how was that experience for you? Yeah, it was it was tough. You know, there was a lot that I um, researched when I was writing this novel. Um, remember that the South African press was censored mostly during apartheid. Uh, there was a lot of propaganda. There was a lot that South Africans were, weren't being told. Um, and so, you know, when I researched, so much came out and it was just like, for example, the scene in Regina Mundi, the um, black Catholic church in Soweto, finding out that white police actually chased the black children into the church and 
opened fire on them in this church to me was just, I think when I read that, I was just, it was horrifying. It was horrifying. And what was so, what was more horrifying about most of these things that I found out is that these were things that were done by my people. These were things that were done by white people. Um, and you just kind of have to take that on board and you have to say, you know, these are things my people did and it's horrifying and it's sickening and it fills me with such great shame, but it needs to be confronted. We have to own this part of what we did um, before we can move forward with it. And so, you know, there were so many times that I was writing that I wanted to shy away from something. You know, there were scenes that I wrote about in the Soweto uprising um, and, and, and scenes that I kind of wanted to portray it in a euphemistic way um, without the horror of it. And I, and I wanted to use lovely words for it. But every time I felt myself cringing and being resistant to something, I knew that that was the thing I had to explore. And I had to explore it as head on and as honestly as I possibly, possibly could. And there were times when I was writing that I was crying you know um there were times that i had to stop it step away come back to it um but you know I, i felt like it was just necessary work and it was necessary to portray these things but yeah it, it was it was incredibly difficult mm. i i mean i can imagine um, but having on. said that not nearly you know as difficult for the people who lived through it and that's the thing you mm. know i was saying For the, yeah. for the people who lived through it, this is why I have to portray it honestly. Yeah. Um, do you sometimes feel, um, even based on what's going on right now in the world, do you sometimes, when you come across pieces of history like that, do you feel like you ha- it's like you have to apologize on behalf of your people? Because I've had some friends and we've had those conversations and they say, sometimes I feel like I'm constantly apologizing for the sins of the past. Like I want to do better, but at the same time, it's like I'm, I'm forever apologizing, um, whether it's um, because of racism or any kind of um, indignities that were done between peoples. So do you do you feel like that for you, oh, especially definitely. because you've covered so much of this material while doing research? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, my whole life I've grown up with this white guilt, um, the sense mm-hmm. of shame. So I've constantly felt this need to apologize. But the amazing thing is that I've had the most wonderful conversations with black people and they have explained to me that my apology one kind of means nothing two they actually don't want it no black person i've ever met has wanted me to go up to them and apologize for what my ancestors did what they want is for me to acknowledge that my life is better and that i do have privilege because of what happened in the past and they want me to do better going mm. forward and they want me to use my platform to make others see that and to do better as well. So, you know, the, here's the thing, like our white guilt means nothing if we're not going to do something with it beyond apologizing. Agreed. Well said. <laughs> well said. Um, let me see. There's another part. Uh, I think it's page 329. I like the way I'm like, 329 is like, she'll know. Yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hold on, hold on. Um, let me see, let me see. 329 here i am because we are on camera i don't want to lick the page look crazy. <laughs> i'm just gonna struggle Why would you don't want to lick anything right with covid you're right now, terrified of anything i know <laughs> i know um hold on hold on which part is this 
Um, yes. And this is Beauty. This is Beauty who's talking about. And she's having a conversation with Robin in this part. And she's asking uh, basically just some hard questions. Just having a heart to heart. And and Beauty always promised Robin that she would be truthful. Whatever happened, she would always tell her the truth. Which I, I, I like that because that's my own philosophy when I'm raising my child. I mean, let's just talk the truth. Obviously, not everything, but I, I'd rather just tell you the truth. Yeah. And and beauty says and i and i read from this it says i know what robin is really asking she wants to know if heaven has made her parents grateful that she's being raised by a black woman who cares for her or if my race is still an issue in their afterlife um because robin's parents were essentially racists and especially her dad was particularly cruel to the black people around him and i think okay well yeah i think yes i think at the end of the day it's it's how you interpret the book and i think for robin she was having a hard time understanding if the love she feels for beauty is sanctioned by her parents who are watching her from above because in their world black and white was very separate um i continue she is wondering if heaven is also divided with a section for whites only and a section for blacks and if prayers go up to god color coded so he knows which ones are more important and which ones should be ignored and i read that and i was like okay okay so it kind of puts um kind of put racism in perspective um because if indeed the whole apartheid system meant that white was better than black so are we saying that this exact way beauty puts it and and i love the way you put it does it mean that god understands that these are white prayers and i should act on them real quick and these are black prayers and i should maybe just kind of ignore them and it's just it's such a it's basically she's trying to voice um the thoughts of a child but it's the most simplistic way to put it to make the world understand what are we trying to do it it, it doesn't matter so there there are parts of the book like that you read and you're like whoa you know that's like a a whoa moment and and, and maybe that's what i meant by the little nuances of the book it's 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 a, it's a it's a very simple way of putting it but it's also really profound Um let me see. Is there another one that I wanted to read out? Yes. And this one is related to that actually. I think it's page 98 and this is beauty. Um and I think one of the most disturbing scenes for me in the book. Uh there were two. The first one is when they came to get um, when they came to inform Robin that her parents had been killed and they took Mabel to the station. and just them knocking on the door cuz it's at night knocking on the door and finding Mabel and what are you doing here with this white child and just the fear she must have felt and then now you know them taking them to the police station and the torture she must have endured because afterwards when they got her out she was blank it's like she'd been through things that she couldn't speak so that whole series like i could feel the terror that Mabel must have been experiencing it really chilled me and the other one was um for beauty when she's really pressed on her way to Soweto from Transke that's how it's pronounced Transke um going basically to find her daughter a warrior child and she wants to use the bathroom and um the color of the bathroom is spoiled and she can't very well be on the road because everyone is seeing her and she decides to just make a break for it and go to the white toilet and this white girl this small little girl just looks at her and asks her mom I mean this black lady couldn't possibly be trying to enter our toilets right and the mom is like of course not she knows better and i think what hit me from that scene is that is the politeness the chilled politeness of the scene because everyone is super polite 
Of course not. She knows better. She would never use the toilet. And of course, beauty smiles. And you know, of course, I would never use. So it's just it's so surreal reading that because yes, everyone is really polite at the surface, but it is such ugliness that we're discussing. So those scenes were. Oh man, I I read them and I was like, those are the kind of scenes that make this book what it is, because you are confronted with the truth. But even beyond that, it's it's just the politeness of it. It just kills me. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, we are going going. It's, I mean, this is how just the world is, and you should accept your place, and that's how it is. And, and also, how think, how polite Beauty is to this little girl. You know, this little girl. Yes. She, I mean, she's a. Uh, a child and yet this child has more power in the world than beauty as an almost 50-year-old black woman has and yet beauty yeah. still like kind of has to defer to her and smile at her and it's just heartbreaking because you imagine the daily um injustices the daily humiliations of the things that for me were what really stacked up you know mm. going through that every single day and still maintaining some sense of of dignity in the face of that I can't imagine. It just yeah, that's exactly what it is. All the indignities she faces because even um there's another part and I think beauty how beauty expresses herself that voice is just I really enjoyed reading it because there's a part where she's like on this journey she has to take care of herself because in the food chain of victims like a black woman is at the very bottom. You're not just black, you're also black and female. So you're like and I remember just when she says I have to take care of myself cuz on the food chain of victims a black woman is literally the lowest and as a black woman i was like oh my god that is that is so true well obviously not to the extent it was back then but to to yeah to a large extent it still is um yeah hold on it's page 98 and it's related to that funeral scene we were just talking about and this is beauty i think as well Um and I think she came across a scene of like a black Madonna. It was a black Madonna, yes. Yes. And yeah, so there's much to look at, but what keeps drawing my gaze is the portrait of the black Madonna. It depicts a beatific black virgin Mary holding a black baby Jesus, halos of light flare from both their heads. It is a wonderful thought that the Messiah could have been black, but that is just a fairy tale. If Jesus were black, surely we, the children of Africa, would not be suffering as much as we are. And, and I just and I read that and I was like you know what yeah yeah it's very easy to imagine that somehow and 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 that that whole image that we've been sold for a really long time of Jesus being this handsome uh white man with like tendrils blue of hair and <laughs> yeah I mean blue <laughs> eyes like, blonde hair right. yeah <laughs> with blue Crazy. eyes and and that was the image that was sold to us so for a long time you couldn't even possibly begin to think that Jesus would be you know anything close to what you are so those are the some of the passages that you read and you're like beauty's voice i think robin's voice is brought out well but beauty's voice maybe of course because she's more mature it was a beautiful thing to read it was just it was she was very well written and and usually when i'm i'm, I'm reading a book i'll go to goodreads just to kind of peruse and see cuz i there are times i have disagreed with the ratings Yeah. But this book was really highly rated and I was like please don't disappoint me. <laughs> and this is literally my first five star book of this year. Like this oh is the book I've like, You know what? I I get it. I that get it. That is a huge compliment. Thank you. So I'm going to stop gushing now and get back to my <laughs> No, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, we talked about the ugly moments. We talked about the toilet scene. Um and another really ugly moment for me was the mortuary. 
mm. um when beauty has to go and possibly identify um her daughter because the girl is missing and um they've looked everywhere so now you you know and that's what happens whenever you, when you have a missing person who's a dear one to you you hit up now the hospitals and the morgues because now you don't know what to do right and the indifference of the morgue attendant to her the hatred and the just the just god he was so callous about it and this is to him it wasn't a mother who's grieving for a child it's just here's another black mother. woman another black woman it's, who cares oh, yeah. man just i can't even i think everyone just needs to read for themselves just to experience the book in its totality but that was a scene that also really hit home for me because i can imagine as a mother i i'm possibly thinking i'm identifying the body of my child and i'm already in a space and here's a guy who makes you feel worse than dirt oh my it just that was really poignant as well um so my question then would be how difficult was it to write these ugly characters i think i mean cuz of beautiful people they're easy to write i would assume so you know because even as you write them the experience is flowing and light and and, and positive but when you're writing an ugly character you have to like dig down to a really dark place So one, what was the writing experience like for that? And two, what would you consider easier to write? The good character or the bad character? Right. So I read this amazing piece of writing advice early on that helped me so much when it came to writing bad characters is that no bad character in their own story sees themselves as the villain. Mm. They in their own story they see themselves as the hero of their story. And so as a writer as a reader you may see them as the villain but they themselves don't see it that way. Um and so for me I'm always trying to show some sense of nuance and that you as the reader can see that you know th- their behavior is so evil and that they're doing this terrible terrible thing but they're not even sitting there trying to be evil. This is just their daily behavior and that's what makes it that much worse. um that it's you know it's so ingrained in them the racism is so ingrained that the hate is so ingrained that they just go about their day and and this guy in the morgue is like he's an administrator pretty much there's there's bureaucracy there and he just goes about this bureaucracy while being this hateful hateful person and it's difficult to write these characters completely but at least it's easier to write them because you're not in their heads you're not writing them as that character you viewing them from the outside um so you know for me um writing those characters was um a wonderful way to just portray the daily um injustices of apartheid um but again difficult to write from being inside beauty you know to know what beauty is feeling as she is dealing with this incredibly incredibly difficult in other books that i've done i have written from the villain's perspective um and that's incredibly incredibly difficult to actually get into the head and, and write from that perspective interesting okay I I like what you said. There's no villain who ever sees themselves as the villain. Obviously whatever they're doing is justifiable one way or the other. Yeah. Um let me see. Oh yes, and this is something that um this movie that just came out with um Chris Hemsworth. Um what's it called? On Netflix. Oh my god, forgotten. Oh, I'm terrible. I watch <laughs> very little television. I'm sorry. I can't help you. <laughs> Wow, I cannot believe I don't remember but anyway, so there's this movie that comes out and and it's this guy who's like a mercenary and he's hired to um basically 
rescue the kidnapped son of like this um it's a, a, a like a this indian mob boss of sorts and part of the backlash for that movie was the the white savior complex and i mean i love the movie um and that's not what i thought when i first saw it but then now when i read about the criticism i took a step back and i was like okay let me be let me be a critical uh watcher and i and i guess i could see where someone goes with that so in the book there's a white angel maggie and maggie um does a lot for the cause in terms of she helps um well black people basically fight apartheid and you know she gives refuge to those who need it and in fact it's maggie who helped beauty one find work so that she could have a legitimate reason to stay on in Johannesburg and you know does all these sorts of things but at the end of the day for Maggie it's it's also maintaining how do you say uh, utilitarianism to some extent the greater good yeah. so when Maggie um I oh know sorry when beauty is trying to find her daughter and asking too many questions and Maggie tells her you need to take a step back but beauty's like this is my child thank you for your help but this is my child i cannot i can't pull myself back and And when I read that I and I, I asked myself because she is the white angel because that's what the black people refer to her as did you feel or do you feel that there's a bit of the white savior complex in that mm, I in that, love yeah. I love that you've seen this because when I speak to a lot of book clubs they kind of view her as she's been written as the white angel and Maggie is not at all you know some white angel she's completely a white person with white savior complex She sees herself as this wonderful white person swooping in to kind of save black people from themselves and she's actually of no use to beauty at all. All Maggie does is she puts beauty in touch with Robin and helps her get that job. The rest of the time she is standing in beauty's way. She's trying to control beauty. She's trying to control beauty's access to information and she's saying I will give you this information in my own time i will help you in my own time and how is this any help to beauty whatsoever and this is a huge problem um in south africa and other parts of the world you know when you're trying to fight racism and then you have white people who are like well i'm not racist look at all these things i do but they have a white savior complex um mm. and that's exactly what i was trying to show with maggie there's another white character um wilhelmina who helps beauty but helps beauty in the way that beauty needs help not in mm. the way of a white person going well i'm going to control you i am going to control the way in which you go about this um and yeah and it saddens me that so few readers actually picked up on that they took me as as a writer at my word i called her the white angel so they kind of fawn about her and how wonderful she was and i've kind of got to explain she actually wasn't that wonderful mm uh it's um, it's 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 subtle in the the way that she's controlling because in the beginning i mean if she hadn't saved beauty beauty would be in jail right. um and reading about that we had a pass system as well um in kenya during the colonial period um but this ended like a long time ago um this is before even my parents were born we got independence in 1963 So I think the pass system ended even before independence. It had ended like the early 60s. I'm not sure about that, but basically by the time we're getting independent we're fine. So reading about the pass system, something that was in place as late as the 70s and and when did the pass system end in South Africa actually? I was carrying on until the 80s. I'm just trying to think when it actually stopped. Um I I don't think there was an official stop to it until apartheid ended, but I feel like um yeah, I remember in the 80s 
Eunice having to to have a passbook. So yeah. Wow. So when I was reading about the passbook and I was like, I don't know, to me the 70s is, is still contemporary. I was born in the 80s. I was born in 86. Wow. Um so when you talk about people so my in my, you know, in my context, my parents did not need a pass. Uh my grandparents did. Um especially both both grandfathers. But because you know the way young men during the time it was mau mau. But reading about the past in the 80s, the 70s and the 80s to me it's so recent. I in my head it's so recent and I'm like wow. It just it wow, it, it baffled me. It just didn't make sense. And also the book the best thing about the book is that it made it forced me to you know explore history a little bit more because yes, I mean I knew about apartheid from a surface level. But now it forced me to go and read up a bit more and 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 it's got me so curious about a lot of things and and I like that because that the what a book should do for you is like open up your mind and you know make you want to read a lot of things. So when I think that I was in primary school when South Africa got independence it's 1994 it's like just the other day. Yeah. It's so and to be honest reading this book and all the research that came after it it kind of made me understand why I feel South Africans are angry. I could understand the fire because I've been I've been to SA like twice. Um I went I was in Joburg and I was in Durban. And you know just relating with everyone, I got that sense of anger, just anger and I and I remember asking a friend of mine, "Why are you guys so angry?" Because he says there's just so much that's wrong and we haven't healed and we haven't recovered. And I think I was I was a little judgmental and I was like, "Yo, this thing ended a long time ago, guys. I mean, you got to I mean I, I guess things are bad but you need to move on. <laughs> but reading this book it just it really puts a lot of things in perspective. It makes you confront the ugly history and it really I want to go back and 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 find that guy and and apologize. I didn't live I have I did not live your life. I had no right to judge you. And, and even like young black people in South Africa today, you know, who because if you were born after the end of apartheid in South Africa, they referred to you as a born free. um meaning oh, so that's what lived, that means. yeah born right. free means you never lived under under apartheid rule but yeah. even for these young people they have inherited trauma you know because they were raised by people who lived through apartheid who were raised by people who lived through apartheid and that kind of trauma makes its way down and and you get this inherited trauma and so i get so furious with white south africans who say oh apartheid ended long ago why why are you still so fixated on it get over it move on but you know the hilarious thing is is that in south africa there was these clashes between white people between the afrikaners and the english people um and the british were the first people to set up concentration camps in the world when there was the boer war and 30,000 afrikaners were killed in these concentration camps and to this day there is animosity between english and afrikaans people in south africa because of something that happened more than 100 years ago and yet they are telling black people to get over something and move past something that only ended in the 90s it's like you know where is your empathy like you know if you can't get over something that happened more than 100 years ago how are you expecting people to get over something that happened in the 90s something that they've actually lived and continue to live. Um well it's interesting because in the book that I I I never knew there was that kind of um I've heard about the war again. You 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 learn about history in passing until you delve deeper you never really understand. But that um Afrikaner English kind of conflict is brought out 
Um, very much so, actually. Um, when in the book, when um, I think it's Robin who plays with an Africana child, and the mom comes and says, "Oh, your child is teaching my kid dirty ways," and you can, you know, you you can kind of feel the shift. And even for um, Edith, Edith, I think is one who's very conscious of that kind of. Um, of conflict so again those are the little nuances that you know the book brings out so another question was what kind of research did you have to put into the book and is there anything in terms of and we've talked a bit about that is there anything that you came across that was particularly poignant for you that you know you still remember that stood out yeah so so like i said the south african press was so censored so trying to rely on the South African press to look back at clippings and accounts of the Soweto uprising. I mean, the white newspaper's account of the Soweto uprising was scary. It was pretty much these barbaric little black savages uh, attacked the innocent police kind of thing. Uh, and that's the, the story you were getting. And so I started relying on international press accounts. The, like the BBC, etc., on what was really happening in South Africa. Um, I was fi- I was able to um, get information from the Apartheid Museum and the Hector Peterson Museum, which is a mu- museum about the Soweto uprising. It's based in Soweto. Uh, so there was tons of stuff that I found out that was just really shocking and, and surprising to me. One of the things was that how many Jewish people were involved in anti-apartheid activism and how many Jewish people were helping black people in the country at the time, even though they themselves were kind of being persecuted for that. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring in the anti-Semitism into the novel. You know, when the novel first went out to publishers, um, I had editors say to me, oh, the racism is enough. Why do we need the anti-Semitism? Why do we need the um, homophobia? And I mean, I, there was a lot I was prepared to change about this book. At one point, I took out 60,000 words from this novel and started rewriting it all over again. But I wasn't prepared to take that out because I wanted to show in a culture like South Africa, in a country like that, it is such an us and them. And anyone who isn't an us becomes a them and becomes yeah. persecuted. And so obviously, black people in South Africa got the worst of it through the racism, but there were other echelons of prejudice and discrimination um, falling to Jewish people um, and to gay people as well. And so that's something that I wanted to include as well. Great. Um, This is the edition I have. I don't know if there's another edition of this book. Yes, there's a hardcover edition and then there's kind of a um, other paperback with uh, the glossary of terms in the back, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, I I have the one that has the glossary of terms. Okay. And then it also has a forward that you've written. Oh, wonderful. Which, is, which you kind of like give a glimpse into why you wrote the book and why it meant to, what it meant to you and introduces Eunice as well. Right. So since um, beauty is loosely based on Eunice, we'd say, not 100%, but loosely. So is Robin also based on someone you know? Yeah, Robin is kind of loosely based on me. But I tell people that all the bad parts of Robin are loosely based on me. Um, and all the good parts of Robin is kind of how I wish I had been as a child. You know, so there's mm. these kind of breathy moments with Robin that you kind of just want to grab her and shake her because she does like terrible things sometimes. Um, and sometimes she's just oblivious. 
Uh, but but anyway, the things that she does can be incredibly, incredibly frustrating. So some of Robin was based on me. I mean, there's there's a scene with jewelry where um, jewelry disappears and beauty is blamed for this. And this was based on me as a child. I took my mother's jewelry. I played with it and then I didn't know where I put it and I allowed Eunice to be blamed for this. Um, you know, so there, there were tons of places where I would say every time Robin drove you crazy, that was me. <laughs> yeah. That was nine-year-old Bianca. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess it, it, it's a lot of people do write what they know and um, so it's not all, all the more shocking but you know, you just don't assume that because I mean you also had that similar dynamic that she's automatically based on you. Um, The other one is, yes, basically you're, you're South African, um, born and raised, I assume. Yes. Born and raised. So you were born into apartheid. So you saw it for yourself, like, and you saw the, the, well, the during and you saw the after. So do you feel that as a nation, as a country that you've made, well, strides? Do you feel that you are somewhere that you can be proud of? as a country? Well, I mean, South Africa has made huge strides in that South Africa's constitutions is one of the most advanced constitutions in the world. You know, thank you to Nelson Mandela. We have an amazing constitution. We had some of the first gay marriages, um, a very, very liberal and inclusive constitution. But in all honesty, what has hit home for me in the last kind of six weeks during the whole Black Lives Matter movement is how far South Africa needs to come because every day logging onto Facebook, I mean, I now live in Canada, so I have tons of Canadian friends, I have tons of American friends, and then I have these South African friends who I grew up with and went to school with. And what has been heartbreaking for me has been seeing South Africans with all lives matter or white lives matter. They just don't get the Black Lives Matter movement and they are so defensive to it. Um, and the racism kind of comes out and it's come out more during the Trump era than it did during the Obama era. It feels like people in South Africa now can feel openly that they can talk openly about their racism because, you know, there are other racists out there who they know of. And that's the part that really breaks my heart. Um, yes, South Africa has come a long way. Most There are many, many South Africans who are not racist, who have embraced the end of apartheid, who've embraced democracy, who have, you know, become inclusive, et cetera, et cetera. But then there are still those people who kind of cling to the old ways. Um, And that's the part of me that's that's really, really heartbreaking. Um, And South Africa will not move on until it truly has a reckoning with its racism. You know, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, did the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, but it it was over quickly. It wasn't nearly in-depth enough. Uh, And these wounds run deep. And there are many, many South Africans who are still hurting, who still have this trauma uh, that they haven't reckoned with. And so this manifests in different ways. Um, There's still huge poverty in South Africa. The, The kind of gap between the wealthy and the poor is ever widening. It didn't help that Jacob Zuma was out to um, make himself wealthy and his cohorts wealthy without caring about, you know, um, the man on the street. And so there are still too many South Africans who live in desperate poverty, who live in shacks without access to running water and electricity. And while you have desperate poverty um, and 
kind of a lack of decent education, you know, you are going to see people scrambling at the bottom of that Maslow's hierarchy pyramid. You know, um, people cannot get to a level of self-actualization and self-fulfillment if every day they are just trying and struggling to put food on the table. And this was the case, you know, um, a year ago. It's worse now because of COVID. Um, and but at least now South Africa has Cyril Ramaphosa, um, really good leadership in comparison to, to Jacob Zuma. And I'm I'm hoping I, I'm ever hopeful for South Africans um, that that they will one day turn this corner um, and reach their potential and the level of fulfillment that I believe that they they're capable of. Yeah, um, I think many countries have a lot to contend with and especially African countries uh, we, we we have a lot of growth to achieve but um, I guess it's a day at a time and yeah. but I, I can understand after writing this book and now the events that are happening all around the world it does put everything into sharp perspective it's like it's like Bianca kind of knew this was coming but eventually when people are dissatisfied things will come to a head it's it's right. it's inevitable yeah, and this movement is so encouraging to see, you know. Um, I think uh, a, a question you and I chatted before, and I actually want to use this to jump into that question, is you yeah. were asking um, how difficult it was as an African to publish a story because so many Africans struggle to publish internationally. Yes. Um, and, and just in response to that, you know, for me, I wouldn't have been able to get published in South Africa um, I wouldn't have been able to get an agent in South Africa and I wouldn't have been able to get a publisher in South Africa. So for me, I was able to tell this very African story only once I arrived in Canada and was able to get a Canadian agent and then an American publisher. But having said that, as difficult as my publication journey was, again, I'm a white person and it was so much easier for me than it is for black authors in South Africa who I speak to regularly. Um, these are people who've lived these experiences, who've written about them. They can only get published by small independent publishers in South Africa. And even when this happens, you know, I when I speak to book clubs, I'm like, read more South African fiction and I'll recommend a whole bunch of books to them. But they can't even get these books in North America because they don't get exported. So the one of the things about Black Lives Matter that's been so encouraging to me is seeing how publishing is having a reckoning. And publishing is saying we do not publish enough diverse titles. We don't have enough black editors. We don't have enough black people in PR and marketing. Uh, we don't have enough black reviewers. And so, you know, publishing is having a reckoning and they're starting to say we are going to commit to being more diverse, um, et cetera, et cetera. And that to me is, is, has been um, a byproduct of the Black Lives Matter movement that, that's been wonderful to see. I get it. Because even in Kenya, a majority of um, the books that we see on the shelves, very few quality ones are published locally. You, you get what I mean? And yeah. and we always have this running joke and we're like, oh, you'll know a book is published locally because it looks like a chemistry textbook. Yeah. And honestly, that breaks my heart because yeah. I, I, I know the reason that this is happening is because we simply do not have the resources to be able to publish on a wide scale and not just publish, but distribute. Because I was actually looking for um, the book that comes after this, um, If You Want to Make God Laugh. Yeah. And I've looked and I've looked because I want, I want to read the hardcover book. I don't want to read it. I don't want the Amazon, you know, I don't want the, the e-version. I actually yeah. want the hardcover, but I, it's hard for me to find it. So I just, 
it does break my heart but what is also good is because even in the publishing um the publishing industry even in Kenya is growing and you can see more and more independent publishers are coming up and the quality of work is improving so it'll take time but eventually we are getting there but i i was definitely curious as a south african what was your publishing journey like so canadian agent american distributor so it's um Canadian agent sorry and American publisher correct yes this is yes. published by Penguin Random House i believe it's yeah Putnam which is an imprint of Penguin Random House yeah yes so i mean i don't know so what what advice based on that as an author right now in Africa who's who's listening or is watching um if i want to get my book published what's what's the first step where do i even begin You know the first thing is writing a book that is as wonderful as you can possibly make it and don't be trying to cater to western tastes uh or to what you think a western audience wants i always say to my students a good story well told is a story that's going to find a home so firstly write the best story you can surround yourself with people who can give you good honest critique that comes from a place of wanting to make your work better that's the first thing i have the most wonderful writing groups uh writing is lonely it's difficult and and we all bolster each other and we help each other make each other's work so much better so first do that get that community make the work as good as you can and then when you seek representation in terms of an agent um i cannot speak to how many literary agents are in kenya but i can tell you now that in the us in canada in the uk um agents are now actively seeking diverse books diverse titles so you know send out your manuscript to um to agents who have who are seeking this kind of work and who have perhaps represented something similar um because you know uh you need that international exposure you need an agent that can sell you to a US publisher, a UK publisher, etc, etc. Don't aim low in te- in terms of just publishing locally. Um and yeah, just keep going. Do you know that this book was rejected more than 100 times by publishers. How many of you don't know the words was rejected so much? Um I took out 60,000 words. I started writing it again. The first draft spent 4 decades. I then The book now spends a year and 3 months. But I was not prepared to give up on the story because it was one that I was so passionate about. It was one that kept me up at night. So choose something that you're passionate about and just keep going, keep trying, keep writing, keep making it better. Um and and it'll happen for you one day. Wow, 100 rejections. <laughs> because i can imagine after the first rejection you're like what do you know second third fourth by the time you get to 50 like you really need to be self motivated and you're right you need to have a story that's burning for you to be able to keep on submitting and submitting and submitting yeah but yeah it wasn't just self motivation it was a story that i was so passionate about like i believed in the story more than i believed in myself and that kept me going so you know If you write from the heart and you write things that you're passionate about and that you're angry about and they keep you up at night and that you're fired up about that comes through in the writing um and I truly believe it'll it'll find a home. Fantastic. Well, we're very glad that it got published. Very, very glad. Um so wait, that was had two more questions. Uh the first one was who is your favorite character in the book? 
if you have a favorite and why they're your favorite. My obvious favorite is Beauty. She's just she's just such an amazing character. Everything about her is amazing. But what I also tend to do is I fall in love with my secondary characters. And they have a way of trying to take over the whole book. Um they kind of think they're the main character and one of my secondary characters that I absolutely love that I could probably write an entire novel about is the character of King George. Um you know, he's classified as colored by South African standards, half black half white so he's neither one nor the other he's a very damaged person and yet he's just so delightful so giving um there for robin when she desperately needs him and he's hilariously funny uh, and i'd probably say writing him was my favorite and i'd probably say you know um out of out of all the the obvious characters he he would be my my favorite character and for anyone who reads the book and who loves it um Please read Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. Uh you know, it, it, this is a book of essays based on Trevor Noah's experience of being colored in South Africa, literally being born a crime because it was illegal for black people and white people to have sexual relations with each other and and have a baby come from that. Um and he just gives so much context to what there was like growing up in Soweto during that time um and it, he's able to give a lot more factual information about South Africa that I wasn't able to give in the novel so so please read that as well mm, I've read I've read Born a Crime um um and it's it's a it's a fun book I guess the difference is because it's um autobiographical it's 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 a yeah it's a different kind of experience yeah. uh for that particular book I feel that a lot is missing I really I that's a whole discussion for another yeah, day. Yeah. I I truly enjoyed the book, but yeah, I felt like there are parts that are missing. I wanted to know, okay, Trevor, you made it out of Soweto, you went to become the talk show host of one of the biggest shows in the world. What was how did you transition? And I feel that that part is missing. So I feel that there are parts he readily gave of himself and then there are other parts that he kept. So I was I was waiting for the sequel. I thought, okay, this I, is going to be Definitely think there will be a second book that'll deal with that. Definitely. Yeah. Um yeah. I mean this book has sold so well. It's it's really done phenomenally well and it gives such a wonderful context to his past. Um I'm I I don't doubt that there'll be a a book that'll deal with that transition and and you know his life now. Yeah, definitely. So that's I kind of I felt that that's how it was written, that's how it was set up. Yeah. Actually, you talked about King George and cuz I had to read like really carefully cuz I couldn't understand what he was saying. Yeah, it's like okay. Let me try pieces together. And one thing I learned about that is I didn't know that colored people didn't need a pass. So if you were colored, so literally the hierarchy was very clear. You're white, you're colored, you're black. Right. So and there, there were bits in between, like whether you were Asian or etc mm. in between. But being colored meant you had some white blood in you, which meant, you know, uh that that you had better rights. And I mean some of the laws were crazy. Like some people had to go to home affairs to get a race classification, be classified as either white or black. And there was something that they used called the comb test. They would put a comb in someone's hair and if it just stayed there then they'd be like, "Oh, you're black." But if the comb if if the comb kind of fell out then they were like, "You're white." I mean, it is crazy. These these What if you just relaxed your hair that day? I, I swear. I I I can imagine the comedic I can imagine the comedic scenarios of some of these things if it if it wasn't so hideous it would be hilariously funny. 
um, you know, so, and, and I have a friend in Canada who um, was classified as colored in South Africa, but she's very fair-skinned and her aunt and her cousins are much darker-skinned. So she got benefits like being able to go to white schools because she could pass as white, but her family members couldn't. They were black. And can you imagine like the kind of family dynamics where you all come from the same family, but because your skin's lighter, you get all of these benefits um, that darker skinned cousins don't. And it's it, it's just kind of crazy. And King George was that kind of character. You know, he speaks in this kind of street slang of Cape colored people. Um, his, his language is kind of all over the place, but he's, he's really just um, such a pure heart and such a, a delightful yeah. character. And a lovable one as well. Yeah. And there's some parts of the book I found a bit fantastic. For example, Robin being able to sneak out of the house, like this is like a nine, almost 10 year old girl. And she's able to kind of, you know, with her detective skills, kind of like hide out in the trunk and, you know, right all the way to Soweto. So there's some parts of it. And there are some parts where I thought her reasoning was very grown, yeah. perhaps a little too grown for a nine year old. Yeah. Um, like there's something, uh, was it Morris? The Goldman son. Sorry, yeah. Mari. There's uh, Mari. And there's a conversation that they're having, something about just, you know, of hate and discrimination. And she answered him so wisely. I was like, wow. So it made me wonder. Because in some levels, Robin wasn't just Robin the nine-year-old. It felt like Robin is a much older woman who's kind of recounting her time as a nine-year-old. Again, you're picking up on things that very few readers pick up on, which I love about this discussion. So Robin is, Robin is actually in her 40s when she is recounting the story. And she's trying to recount it through the child's lens. She's trying to faithfully recount what happened without giving these adult explanations for things and bringing the adult filter into it. Um, so a lot of the rationalizations... Um, all of Robin's dialogue, the letters that she writes, you know, I don't want to give away too much at the end, but like there's this child's way of believing that you can fix something by kind of putting a band-aid on a gaping wound. Uh, and this doesn't actually fix anything, but it's just the child's yeah. reasoning. But there are times when Robin's adult voice definitely intrudes, especially near the end. Um, that adult voice comes through. So definitely it was it was a balance of the two. Um, okay. Some readers didn't feel that they didn't like the balance of the two. They found it a bit jarring. Some liked it. The scene where Robin actually sneaks out in, in the car to Soweto is based on something that happened with a friend of mine when they were 10 years old. Their father mm -hmm. used to do contract work in Soweto uh, and they fell asleep in the back of their father's car, woke up in Soweto, got out and just started walking around. And here was the thing about the race relations at that time is that um, black people were so terrified of what white people could do to them that they protected this white child in Soweto because they knew if something bad happened to this child, all of them would feel the fallout of it. And so, you know, I have a lot of North American readers who say, oh, no, they wouldn't protect, protect the child. They would, you know, um, the child would be in danger, but absolutely not. That child would not have been in danger. That child was completely and utterly protected by virtue of the color of their skin. Um, I, I, I can definitely see that because when you think about it, I mean, 
hell will rain down on you. So you'd rather make sure that nothing happens right. to the kid. Yeah. I was actually trying to find where I wrote that line because that's that's where I felt that old Robin intruded. Yeah. Um into it but I I don't think I old old Robin actually intruded a lot. I mean at the end of um Robin's first chapter old Robin yeah. intrudes. There's a bit that goes um it was a normal day just like any other day. Um my parents were advers- adversaries and then they were allies shifting roles so fluidly that that you couldn't see when the lines were crossed. Mabel hovered like a benevolent shadow in the wings. uh and she talks about her and cat and that voice is definitely much older than than that child's voice so i had it like intruding every so often but i tried not to let it kind of take over the story um and there was a part where she did say you know little did i know that many years later yes. yeah so there are definitely, definitely some parts yeah. um oh we haven't discussed cat actually yes um, i want to be careful when we discuss cat because i don't want to give away spoilers Oh yeah. I think Don't worry, anyone... I cut you off there before you actually said anything. <laughs> okay. So, do we discuss cat? Well, we can kind of discuss cat, but I don't want to give anything away because that's something that I had to take great care with in in writing it to make sure that there was a bit of a surprise for the reader. Ah, yeah. Well, I'll def- Okay. Well, I'll say this <laughs> without saying anything. I was definitely surprised. I'm sorry. Because um just the way cat was written and the way she turned out to be Yeah, that definitely surprised me. But then now maybe shifting into the mother-daughter dynamic is explored yes. in in this book. Um there's Beauty and Nomsa. Um and then there's Robin and all her maternal figures starting with her mom who I guess was loving but at the same time not very maternal. Um you know, it to maybe too concerned with what other people would think yeah. as opposed to just letting a child be a child. So why 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 those dynamics because it it's it's a very strong a mother daughter relationship of course is very strong and it's wrought with all kinds of issues but yeah so why why that dynamic why do you know that when i was writing this book i didn't even know i was exploring that dynamic this mm. is how so much subconscious things comes out in the writing of the book. And I remember one of the first book clubs I did, somebody said, "This book is a wonderful meditation on motherhood." And I was like, "No, it's not a meditation on motherhood." And they were like, "Are you kidding me?" And they said all the things you just said, and I was like, "Oh, it's a meditation on motherhood." But I think the reason why it came out in the writing of this novel is that you know, spending so much time in Soweto during the onset of the AIDS pandemic, I got to see so many mothers who desperately wanted to mother their children and raise their children and they couldn't do it because they were dying. And I have known tons of women who are mothers but perhaps shouldn't have been mothers. You know, they're not very good mothers. And then you have people who desperately want to be mothers but because of fertility issues can't be mothers. And I saw so many of these children get orphaned and then I saw people step into the breach in the role of mother who would you would never traditionally expect like tons of gay men suddenly were volunteering at this orphanage um you know would come there on a saturday morning after a night of clubbing the night before uh and would wake up on a saturday morning with a hangover come go to this orphanage to spend their whole day with these kids who desperately needed somebody maternal in their lives and that for me was such an amazing 
fascinating experience to see who steps up, who who steps into that mother's role. And you know, there's that African saying, it takes a village to raise a child. And I have never seen that more on display than I saw in South Africa during those years, a whole village um, of people raising these children. And so for me, you know, subconsciously, these were things that I was working through. And as well, I decided when I was 27, no, just after that, my husband and I got married at 27. I decided around about 30, um, we decided that we didn't want to have children. Um, that we, you know, we had all these children coming home with us on weekends. And I decided all of my maternal affection would go towards these children. But at the same time, I was forced to defend that decision time and time and time again. People going, it's your biological imperative to have children. As a wife, you should have children. I was getting lectured by strangers in shopping centers that I didn't even really know about how dare I decide not to have children. So I feel like there was a part of me that also wanted to explore that. And there was kind of that defense of that as well, because like Edith decides she does not want to have children. She sets up her whole life around that. And then suddenly motherhood is kind of forced on her. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was very much an exploration of all of those feelings. Wow. Yeah, that, that's definitely, that is definitely um, deep. But I, I get what you mean, especially in Africa, for any woman to say, I'm not going to have kids. Oh, goodness. It's any kind of, any anything to do with motherhood, there's so much judgment that comes in. Right. So whether you have the children, how many you have, how too you many raise them, you raise them. Yeah. I mean, you can't please anyone. At the end of the day, yeah. you have to live your the way you want to live yeah. your life. But I did think that, that the dynamic was interesting because he is beauty mothering a child who's not really hers while, you know, yearning to... It's basically she's left her children to come and take care of someone else's children and that really, it must hurt. And now when I read about now Eunice in the afterward and I was like, wow, literally you could only see your kids a short time of the year, your own children, and yet you spend the, your life nurturing someone else's and the injustice of that it's it's just really it's heartbreaking but i mean wow i i love this book i would recommend this book to absolutely everyone african or not um i don't as much as it's an african story i think it's a universal story because apartheid can just be a euphemism for whatever else kind of injustice is going on in the world you know and i just thank you for writing a really good book Thank you for being such a wonderful reader. You've been such an intuitive, sensitive reader. It's been wonderful chatting to you about these things. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I want to know. I'm just curious. What are you reading? Like, what do you read? Oh, my goodness. I read pretty much everything. And at the moment, I'm trying desperately to help um, independent bookstores in Canada and in the U.S. kind of make money during COVID because they've had to close their doors. They're finding it extremely difficult to make money. So I'm hosting tons of online Zoom events that are kind of ticketed. They sell a ticket and the person gets a book and they get the event. So I'm reading all of these books for these events so that I can interview authors. Some of them are psychological thrillers. Some of them are literary fiction. Um, It's really been all over the place at the moment. The one that I read recently that I absolutely adored was The Girl with the Louding Voice. Have you I really seen want that yet? Yeah. yeah. I've Add seen it, a lot of around it. Add it to your huge to-be-read pile. It's just, yeah. But there's there's been some some really amazing books that I've, that I've read lately, yeah. 
Okay. What about in the past? Any, 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 any that you've read that really jumped out at you? Um, my favorite book of last year was um, the most fun we ever had. Um, it's a multi-generational family saga um, based in the US. Her name's Claire Lombardo and the book is really thick. But it's one of those books that when I finished it, I had such a book hangover. Like nothing I picked up, um, I absolutely, you know, loved. Um, the Most Fun We Ever Had by Kylie Reed is about a young black woman in the US who is a nanny. Um, to a white child and it's the dynamics between her and this this white woman um, that resonated with me I absolutely loved that um, my dark Vanessa which mm. came out recently that's a book with a lot of controversy um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that as well and now I've just finished reading a burning uh, which is contemporary India and it looks at the class system and all kinds of things in India as well which was a phenomenal phenomenal book and then Oprah's just chosen a book called Deacon King Kong uh, yeah. which I'm busy reading at the moment which is phenomenal as well so I'm like you I just my to be read pile just grows and grows I think you've got girl woman other in the background there oh yeah yeah. I mean, I just put these so that the, the, the picture could look pretty. <laughs> yeah. No, Girl, Woman, Other was just amazing. I mean, you could see why, you know, she, she won the Booker Prize for that. It's a pity she had to share it. It's a phenomenal book. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just great literature coming out. And my To Be Red pile just grows and grows and grows. I mean, literally every book you've mentioned, except I think The Burning, I've not heard of that. That's all like on my wish list. Um, again, it's, it's sometimes in Nairobi, by the time you get a book, it's just going to be dramatic um, although I think we're doing much better than we used to so Deacon King Kong on my wish list as well the Kylie okay. Reader yeah. on my wish list as well every literally everyone I just finished my Dark Vanessa as well and I and I loved it yeah uh, so much to talk about book. yeah yeah, yeah. Lots, lots to unpack great good uh, great book club books you know so much to talk about um, and I've been hearing so much from Kenyan readers lately so it's been wonderful in the last six months. I mean, up until then, I didn't ever hear from Kenyan readers and suddenly they're reaching out. So clearly the books are finding their way into the stores. I've chatted with a few book clubs over there, which has been wonderful. So hopefully Aww. the second book makes its way there because that's from um, Nelson Mandela's presidency, the transition from apartheid to democracy. Um, and yeah, a, a, you know, a, a very emotional South African story there as well, dealing with the AIDS pandemic. Oh, fantastic. So any chance you'll ever come down here? Uh, I would love to. At the moment, nobody's going anywhere. Uh, yes. But if, you know, if I ever get an invitation, I will absolutely be there. I would love to, okay. love to visit. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, when I finally get the book, yes. I will call you and we will chat about it. I would love that. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank so, you. Thank you so much, Bianca. It has been a pleasure. Uh, like I said, thank you for writing a great book. And um, it's always it feels good when you see an African you know, writing a book that the world is talking about. I love that. I love my city, oh yes.